Hello, my name is Whitney Pirtle, and I'm a sociologist at the University of California, Merced, and a member of the Sight Black Women Collective. I'm talking today with Dr. Monica McLemore. We're recording this podcast apart from one another since we are in shelter-in-place orders, given the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. McLemore is a perfect person to talk to about this topic, among other things related to Sight Black Women. Dr. McLemore is a tenured associate professor in the Family Health Care Nursing Department at the University of California, San Francisco, an affiliated scientist with Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health, and a member of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health. Dr. McLemore retired from clinical practice as a public health and staff nurse after a 28-year clinical nursing career. Her research is grounded in reproductive justice across the reproductive spectrum, including abortion, birth, cancer risk, contraceptive, family planning, and healthy sexuality, pleasure, and consent. She has over 50 peer-reviewed articles, op-eds, and commentaries, and her research has been cited in places including the Huffington Post, Lavender Health, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine Report, and three amicus briefs to the Supreme Court of the United States. She's an elected member of the Governing Council and chair-elect for the Sexual and Reproductive Health Section of the American Public Health Association. She is recipient of numerous awards, most recently being inducted to the American Academy of Nursing in October of 2019. Please join me in welcoming Dr. McLemore, and we are so happy to have you on this podcast. Well, I'm really grateful to be here. I'm a huge fan of the Sight Black Women Collective, and, and I follow you all on Twitter and Instagram because it's just amazing. Thank you. We love the mutual family. <laughs> <Andrew. laughs> yeah. So I just want to begin learning more about you and your career. I'm curious who and what shaped you to be the scholar and advocate you are today. You know, that's a funny question because, you know, I, I always say to people, I was built, right? I, and, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, I am a product of uh, public education. I have, I have three degrees. My baccalaureate degree is in nursing. I went to school in New Jersey. I grew up in Jersey. Um, my master's degree is from San Francisco State and PhD, you know, in oncology, genomics and nursing is from UCSF. And so I, I have three degrees from three public schools. And, you know, I, I was built. We used to invest in, in liberal arts and public health education and a whole variety of things. But one thing I, I always tell people is I was a preemie in 1969. And you know, what What bothered me about being a premium in 1969, of course, you know, I had to get older in order to know what that was like, but I was a very sick child and mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time with nurses. And one of the things I said to myself, you know, there's something about having, you know, multiple illnesses and chronic illness that, that ages you in ways and, and really changes how you see things, I think. Um, and I remember being eight years old and saying to myself, you know, if I actually live long enough, I really want to be a nurse. The people who, who spend the most amount of time with me, the people who listen to me, you know, I, I want to be a nurse. And it's interesting because no one in my family at that time was in healthcare. And so, <laughs> you know, it's kind of fascinating to all of a sudden turn around and say, hey, hmm, I'm, I want to, to devote my life to doing something that I don't have a lot of role models for, but I really want to be able to do this. And so I, 
you know, I ended up going to a lot of, you know, gifted and talented programs and, you know, at public school. And then when it came time for me to go to high school, uh, I spent a year at the private school my sister attended and I hated it. Mm. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I can't, I, I can't do this. It, it was in Princeton, New Jersey, very prestigious school. I was like, oh, no, I, I, I could only manage a year. And my parents were like, well, what are you going to do? And I ended up going to uh, Mercer Christian Academy, uh, which was a private uh, evangelical religiously affiliated high school um, with the church uh, that my, my father still attends to this day. Mm. And so, you know, I always tell people one of the reasons why I, I, you know, have deep respect for people who have spiritual practices and religiously, you know, affiliated ideas and thoughts and, and people frame their lives that way is because my parents are evangelical, despite the fact that I'm, I'm no longer a believer. So my career really came out of service that came out of, you know, my own personal experience, my very, you know, young exposure to healthcare and nurses. So when I finished high school, I went right to college on a scholarship to study nursing. I came out in 1988, height of the AIDS epidemic. We were in the height of a huge uh, nursing shortage. And this was when people, the federal government was still giving out money for people to be able to get free degrees if they wanted to study nursing. So that's what I did. And so I've, I've been a nurse, licensed nurse since 1993. Um, I may be coming out of retirement. I did uh, sign up for the volunteer corps of nurses. Wow. Um, to be able to be deployed for COVID um, because I literally, like, I literally retired in October of last year. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like I've been retired a long time, y'all. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but I did. I, I filled my, out my application. I have two more documents to upload um, to be deployed to either do triage or clinic-based work or whatever um, as part of the, the public health nursing corps for COVID response. So, yeah, I was built. And, you know, I, I worked for six years and decided I needed to go back to school. Um, I thought about becoming a clinician. A lot of nurses, they go on to be nurse practitioners or midwives or nurse anesthetists or clinical nurse specialists. I shadowed a couple of people and realized, no, nope, that's not the life I want. And I randomly took a, a class at San Francisco State. It was epidemiology, fell in love, mm. decided I was going to do my master's in public health. Because I love Debbie. I was like, oh, yes, this is this got it going on. Um, and this, of course, was when we were mapping the human genome. So you could get free master's degrees because there was all these perverse incentives to be able to have the public health workforce that would need because of the genomic revolution. Right. Yeah. So then, yeah, I, I, I did my master's and two years into the master's degree, I realized, wow, I really want to be a P.I., I really want to be an investigator. I don't just want to work on somebody else's project. I really want to be the person to generate research questions. And to be clear, my, I am not the first Dr. McLemore. My sister is. My sister is a tenured professor at Morgan State University, which is a historically black college and university in Baltimore. And she's yes. an adjunct faculty member at Hopkins. But she's a pharmaceutical chemist by training who does a lot of work looking at pathways. Um, she's a neuroscientist by training. So she looks at pathways um, around cannabinoid uh, addiction um, in, in postnatal rats. 
she's a bench scientist. So I am not even the first doctor in Pecklemore. But I did know what a PhD was because my sister had one. Mm-hmm. And she achieved one, you know, while I was a like, you know, a young, you know, adolescent adult person coming into the world. Um, so that that's that's how I got where I am. I, I finished my PhD in 2010. I joined the faculty at UCSF in 2011. Um, joined the tenure track, and I started as an adjunct. And then um, when a tenure track position became available, I applied for it, uh, was encouraged to do so, didn't get it. Mm. Found out after the fact they wanted me to apply because so they could diversify the pool. Mm. You know, bad mess. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, when that person declined, um, the position was offered to me. I took it. And I became the fifth black tenured person in the 114 year history of my school um, last July. Wow. So, yeah, I tell, I tell people that and they get all grumpy because I'm like, I'm like, dude, yes, I'm in a very liberal state and at a very public institution um, and I am the fifth black person. So when I think about the incredible groundbreaking work of Robert Staples, who was a sociologist, he is the only deceased person um, of the five of us. D. Lois Weeks um, is the chancellor of Chamberlain University. Um, and then the other two black faculty members are still at UCSF. Uh, Dr. Howard Prender-Hughes, who's a sociologist, and Dr. Catherine Waters, who is currently serving as our associate dean for academic affairs in the school. I'm number five. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> I love that. I mean, yes, thank you for sharing all of that. I love that you talked about your sort of career coming out of being built and um, being Mm -hmm. built at birth and through your built Mm -hmm. environment and you being tenured at UCSF. um, One of five is just a testament to how strongly you're built. And despite them maybe not wanting you there, you're there and they need you there. Right. So congratulations to you for making that milestone. And um, we're excited to continue to watch your career, this sort of second phase of your career um, or dual. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this phase is all about earlier career investigators. Right. When I when I got to UCSF as a tenure track faculty person, I was an only you'll hear me rave and range about this uh, rage about it on social media. I hate onlys. Anybody that is an only, I I started really talking about this in 2015. It's unethical to be an only. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, we actually, I just submitted a grant with three of the black, you know, uh, pre-tenure assistant professors in my department. Because, you know, now there are five black faculty members that have been hired. And it's now my job to support them. So I'm, I'm excited. And, you know, they're, they're bright, they're smart, you know, we're all trying to do some really important work. Um, but yeah, no more onlys. No more. No more onlys. <laughs> I no agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to hear more about your work. You sort of gave us a few different tastes talking about your emphasis on birth and um, bring a, being a premature infant and your interactions with nurses. Um, and we are recording this during Black Maternal Health Awareness Week, and that's an issue that your work is squarely situated in. Mm-hmm. You wrote, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
You wrote a powerful piece about the mother blame or the tendency to focus on a mother's individual characteristics or behaviors, which avoids what you call the uncomfortable truth that there are social determinants of health, including healthcare service delivery systems that contribute to poor maternal and infant health outcomes. So you're, mm-hmm. you're sort of saying that, you know, we can't look at just the mother. We, well, we can't blame the mother, period. Um, we can't look at the individual mm-hmm. and these sort of personal characteristics. There are larger things going on that shape mm-hmm. mother's health, and especially for Black women who, um, as a group, have the highest rates of maternal morbidity and mortality. Yeah. Yes. So you wrote, to improve birth outcomes for Black women, I would suggest that we begin listening to the needs of mothers. That's why my recent work has focused on new methods, such as having women generate, rank, and prioritize the research questions that matter most to them, which has allowed funders and researchers to hear from women at a high social and medical risk for preterm birth to determine what their priorities for care are. And I think this framing to your work is so so powerful and relevant because you're calling to researchers to listen to Black women uh, who are having mm-hmm. these experiences. So I just want to hear more about this new work that you're doing um, about Black maternal health and how you know how we can get involved and um, just take us down a little bit more into depth about your work. Absolutely, I appreciate that question and. You know, I, I just, I'm, I want to wish everybody a happy Black Maternal Health Awareness Week, which was started three years ago. And I, I love the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. I mean, I, I have to say that, that some of the best work of my life has been done um, because I get the opportunity to engage uh, with BMMA. So I, I got to, you know, love on BMMA for a little bit. Um, it, you know, Black Mamas Matter Alliance was established in 2015. And, you know, it's really, really grounded in you know, kindred partners, which are Black women-led community-based organizations, irrespective of whatever their uh, financial status is, whether they're a nonprofit or for-profit or LLC or just friends getting together and volunteering, that's really irrelevant within BMMA. Um, and so there are 14 uh, kindred partners, and they're amazing. And they're everyone from Bim Black Mamas Podcast to Kate Matthews' group in Texas, Shades of Blue for maternal perinatal health. Um, And then you have collaborators, people like me, individuals who are interested in uh, improving care and health with for and by black mamas. And I didn't say this at the beginning, and I want to be really clear about this. Um, I use she and her pronouns. Um, I also respond to they and them. Um, And and black mamas is a very specific definition that we use uh, that is very inclusive of uh, uh, non-binary and and, uh, gender-conforming individuals. So it's it's not about um, trying to center in any way uh, people with the capacity for pregnancy. That's that's the language I actually personally like to use. Um, But that, you know, it is a more inclusive discussion. So I have I, I I say this to people all the time. My for my entire twenty eight year clinical career as a nurse, I have always worked with people with the capacity for pregnancy. Some people would say that I work in obstetrics and gynecology or you know women's health or whatever. But the truth of the matter is, I have always worked with people um, who have uteruses and the constellation of folks around them, right? 
So that's that, that's just clinically. I mean, that is the work I've always done. I've worked in labor and delivery units. I've worked in abortion clinics. I've worked. I've worked. I haven't been in orthopedics or cardiology. Right, <laughs> one of those people that has always worked with pregnant and childbearing families, as well as people across the reproductive spectrum. I've worked at Planned Parenthood. I've worked in so that frames my research career. So when I I did my genome PhD, that was really around tumor markers and ovarian cancer. One thing that I really wanted to do in my postdoctoral work was to learn qualitative research methods. So I did all this laboratory and bench work. Um, and it was great. Um, and people were confused when I told them that I was going to do a postdoc in understanding uh, advanced qualitative research methods. And at that time, I could not clearly articulate to anyone because I didn't have the language to say that that molecular work, really understanding, you know, ovarian cancer and tumors is very similar to doing qualitative work because you're trying to approximate and measure and understand things that you can't see. To me, molecular work was always very similar to qualitative work in that way, and I still see it that way. And, you know, my current research is really trying to map respectful care for people with the capacity for pregnancy. Sometimes I have outcomes that I'm very interested in around preterm birth. Sometimes I'm very interested in outcomes of patients or, or you know, community members' experiences engaging with healthcare around times of pregnancy, irrespective of how pregnancies end, whether that's birth or abortion or adoption or miscarriage or whatever. Um, and so for me, you know, I've been so fascinated by the dichotomy of we say we care about moms and babies and families. And we know that maternal child health is an indicator globally of the health of a nation. We know in the United States that the number one reason that people are admitted to the hospital is for childbirth. We have 4 million births a year in the United States and about 98% of them happen in hospitals. So then why do we have such poor outcomes? And, and, and these are the healthiest people that, that come into hospitals and, and, and other healthcare institutions. And so why is there a disparate burden on black and brown communities? So when I started to really unpack all of this and really think about it in, a, in an academic way, I kept coming back to people are always trying to blame pregnant people, right? If you want to have an abortion, you're a vessel and the highest you know, thing that you could ever aspire to is, is actually being a mom. So you're an evil person because now's not the right time for you to be pregnant or you're not pregnant with the right person or you don't have the conditions under which you would want to be a parent. Like, whatever. You, it's you. You're, you're, something's wrong with you. On the pregnancy side, it really then becomes, you know, like if you want to maintain continued pregnancy, well, if you hadn't eaten and if you hadn't drank that and if you hadn't done this, 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 and that wouldn't have happened to your baby, and that wouldn't have happened to you. So I realized there was a lot of judgment, a lot of blame, regardless of whatever kind of decisions you wanted to make around reproduction. And I was like, that's not right. We really need to be scientifically thinking about how, like, what's the root causes here? And, and what I've distilled everything down to is our workplaces are inhumane. And in the context of COVID-19, that's being laid bare. And I use that language purposively because when you think about clinician burnout, 
clinician burnout is very much related to mistreatment and disrespectful care. But people study those two things like they're two different things. Does that make sense? Yes, completely. Right, right. So for me, my current work around not blaming people, my current work around capturing folks' healthcare-seeking experiences, my current work around really centering the voices of the people who have lived experience of a condition, it's because they're experts. Any clinician work they're with will tell you that they learn more from people who walk around every day with a clinical condition than they ever did from the textbooks. Any, ask any clinician, ask oncologists, ask cardiologists, they will tell you that people who live with those conditions know more about that condition than they do. So if we really believe that that's true, that community members who have lived experience are experts by their experience alone, then why don't we treat them as such in our healthcare institutions? So that's really the fundamental question that I've, I've been trying to answer in the last couple of years. I got really, I mean, I, if it's not obvious, I'm a very extroverted person, I'm very passionate about the work that I do, but I got super activated um, in 2016 after the election. And one of the things that I really wanted to do while I was on the tenure track in my tenure journey, and I highly recommend Trish Matthews' book, Written, Unwritten, Unwritten Rules of Tenure, if we talk about fighting black women, that book became my Bible. Um, and one of the things that I realized, her, both her work and the National uh, Faculty Diversity, uh, uh, that situation that Carrie Ann um, Rockamort runs, those two women really helped me to understand the foundational concepts of what it meant to be a tenure track person and what decisions I needed to make in order to be able to be successful. And one of the decisions that I made was I wanted, I had to know that it was possible to build a tenure-worthy career with and in partnership with community engagement and really wanting to center the people who experience the greatest burden of conditions. I needed to know that that was still possible. So I gave up some projects. And I stopped working with certain groups and I, I really retooled all of my work to really do a deep dive in how can we really center people who have lived experience of mistreatment, of social determinants, of structural determinants, of structural racism. How can we really, you know, center their voices and, and shift institutions to, to be forced to listen to them? I immediately thought, well, we, we can, A, use data. And B, make sure they're in every room that I ever go into, mm. which is why we can't have only, right? Mm. I got invited to one of the last things that President Obama did in 2016. He, he hosted a Frontier of, of Science meeting at, uh, in partnership with um, uh, uh, University of Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon. And I got invited to speak. And they were doing these rapid TED Talks, five minutes each person, um, you know, at different levels of science. Right. So intergalactic, interplanetary at the individual level, at the community level. Um, and, and I went and I, I said, I have to show a video of our community engagement work. It's two and a half minutes. I know I only get five minutes, but if you're asking me to come there and to be like one of the only black women to speak at a Frontiers of Science meeting, then I need to bring other people with me. And they were like, oh. 
So we played a whole video of community engagement. And I made sure that every pregnant person, a person who had capacity for a pregnancy in that video was named so that I wouldn't be there by myself. Mm. Right? These are the kinds of strategies that we need to be using while we're at the same time dismantling the fact that, that folks don't have access or opportunity. But we have to stop accepting the only as an actual standard that we're prepared to live with. Yes. Because there's brilliance everywhere and the people we serve are, are quite capable <laughs> of being able to have the skills as experts to represent their lived experience. That is so... That was a little, that, that was a little bit of a rant, but I'm sorry. I had, I had <laughs> that was not a rant. That was a little bit more like a lesson <laughs> that we all need to hear. <laughs> I go on a rant about this. <laughs> well, for those who are, um, who aren't well versed in black maternal health or mm -hmm. various issues related to um, maternal yeah. health and infant health. What are some of those findings that you have found from listening to, um, to the people with the capacity for pregnancy? Like how has yeah. the health shift, shift what we know and how to support? Well, for people who don't know, and, you know, I'm really glad that, that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of CDC has been in the news so much because as taxpayers, we should know what our government is doing on our behalf. Um, uh, the, the CDC has not collected pregnancy-related morbidity and mortality statistics since 2007. So when they finally decided to, to collect statistics, again, going back to what I said earlier, right, because most nations use maternal child health as an indicator on the pulse in the health of a nation, right? The argument goes that if you these are the healthiest people in the universe, and this is a health indicator where you could look at the investments that people make both in the social safety net and in clinical health services. And if your outcomes are great, then that's an indicator that you're doing relatively well and your outcomes are poor, then maybe you need to fix something. Well, the CDC, we didn't have the data to even know how we were doing in maternal child health um, because the CDC has been so defunded. So when the CDC finally did decide to start co collecting statistics again and to look at maternal morbidity and mortality, we, lo and behold, we found that black women were three to four times more likely to die during pregnancy and childbirth, irrespective of whatever their educational preparation was, income, uh, you know, uh, partner status, all the social determinants that you think would be protective for black women are not. I'd like to remind people and go back to the fact that when, you know, Serena Williams and Beyonce and other people started to tell their birth stories around the release of these data, then the disbelief that people had had prior to that, actually people really started listening. And so that was one of the reasons why it was important that Rep. Alma Adams and Rep. Lauren Underwood, who is a personal shero of mine, uh, developed the Black Maternal Caucus. Because when we finally did have data, we realized that it is very strange that we have such a huge disparity between Black and white women in, in, during pregnancy and childbirth, right? Interestingly enough, Nina Martin and Renee Montaigne uh, had been working on the Lost Mothers series, which was a, a photojournalism and written uh, set of stories around the Black mothers and, 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 and the people around them who are dying during pregnancy and childbirth. And, you know, a lot of attention came to that, their work 
which ultimately ended up becoming a Pulitzer Prize winning work um, because it was just such deep investigative reporting around these maternal deaths. The thing that people don't understand is both maternal morbidity and mortality are widely considered to be preventable. Let me say that again. <laughs> maternal morbidity or mortality, we believe that 60, 60 percent of maternal deaths are preventable. Mm. Right? There are 25 comorbidities that go along with what we think uh, contribute to maternal death. So 60 percent of that is preventable. Postpartum hemorrhage is, is a really big one. Right. But there's like 25 different categories in terms of morbidity, uh, complications from anesthesia, like if people have to have C-sections and things of that nature. But six, if 60 percent of, of maternal deaths are preventable, why aren't we doing anything about it? Right. That's why we need a Black Maternal Health Awareness Week. That's why we need a Black Maternal Health Caucus. I want to let the viewers or the listeners know, because we are recording this during COVID, that the, the Monday before shelter in place dropped nationally for all of us. There was a historic piece of bipartisan legislation that was introduced called the Momnibus. And the Momnibus had like a hundred backers, bipartisan. People think, oh, in our partisan and divisive environment, Congress and the House can't get none done. There were a hundred people who signed on to the Momnibus. And what the Momnibus is, is a, um, a uh, set of bills that nine bills in particular that would improve maternal health in the United States, including new monies for everything for from veterans, incarcerated persons, uh, uh, to address social determinants of health, to look at alternative funding models for birth and pregnancy and reproductive health care. Like, but no one's heard of that because then COVID hit, mm. right? And for years, I had joked and said, because at one point when we still had uh, nine candidates vying for the Democratic uh, National Committee nomination to be the presidential uh, frontrunner, everyone had a platform and everyone had a different bill that they had introduced to address the maternal health crisis in the United States. So at one point in 2018, there were 80, 80 different bills that were pending in the House and the Senate to address maternal health in the United States. And I remember I joked to Forbes magazine and said, you know, if we mashed all of them together, we might actually get one decent omnibus bill. Well, Rep Underwood and Rep Adams went to the house and did exactly that. <laughs> they came up with a omnibus. I was like, oh, when I saw that, I was like, wow, that is awesome. So the reason we need to have you know, legislation, the reason we need to have a, a better trained workforce, the reason we need to have better surveillance systems for people in the postpartum period, the reason we need to have better data around, you know, how we even document deaths. I mean, this is another thing the public doesn't understand. Like, we don't even have consistency across the state around what counts as a maternal death. So let me give you an example. If you die in a car accident and you happen to be pregnant, in some states that's counted as a maternal death, even though it has nothing to do with your pregnancy. Right. Or if you're like like shot while you're pregnant. Right. Think condition things like situations that happen to you while you're pregnant in some states are counted as maternal death. So we don't even have consistency in data. So, you know, when when people ask me, why do we need a black maternal health week awareness week? Why do we need to center black mamas? That was the theme for this year, centering black mamas so that they can thrive. Why do we need that? Because we shouldn't 
be a country where black women, irrespective of education, income status, partnership, you know, whatever, you should, you should not be three to four times more likely to die from a preventable condition. That, that's why we need a Black Maternal Health Awareness Week. That's why we need people creating scholarship that is very specific to the lived experiences of Black women. And that is why we need to know their voices, because I say this all the time, guess who has the solutions to this, right? It's one thing to keep describing differences and disparities among and between people. It's another thing to come up with interventions. In my mind, the people who have the lived experience are the people who actually have probably the solutions that we need. So I really have been functioning, at least for the last two years, really trying to build out some interventions, whether that's been creating a novel doula program with formerly incarcerated women, starting their training while they're in custody, um, and really teaching them skills around how to be a doula, how to do, provide trauma-informed care, especially when we know of incarcerated women, 88% of them were parents before they even entered jail. So they have some experience around this. We could optimize that. Or thinking about, you know, how do we map, you know, a self-to-society approach around resilience? We haven't even defined what that is, right? Starting, instead of starting from the question of let's blame people with the capacity for pregnancy, you know, for their poor outcomes, it's a very different research question to turn it around and say, well, why aren't black people extinct? given all that we've been through. <laughs> That's a different question, right? And that's a strength-based, strength assets-based question. What is it about us, not our capacity to circumvent injustice, not our capacity to tolerate pain and all those weird, but what is it about our joy? What is it about how we build community? What is it about you know, how we engage and, and structure ourselves? Where are the positive things that have really allowed us to be able to thrive? That's more of how I think about my work. And that's why community engagement piece is so important, because Black people are not monolithic. That's one of the strengths that no one captures, right? And that's why I think certain researchers shouldn't be asking certain types of questions, because they do see us as a monolithic group, and we're not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, I'm so glad we're recording this during um, Black Maternal Awareness Week um, and that that week was started um, by people like you and others sort of on the ground listening to the community and uplifting the community. Um, these health statistics are staggering. Um, they're, you know, we need clear interventions um, and mm -hmm. that you know, we actually can intervene. <laughs> These are preventable. It does show us, you know, the harms of our society. So I think these sort of interdisciplinary groups, community-based groups to address this issue is so important. And I hope that we continue to, you know, build up around this area and amplify the, the weak, the awareness and the mm -hmm. individuals putting forth that awareness. Absolutely. And I also think that, that, you know, for the listeners, we put into place some temporary things to deal with the pandemic that actually should be really permanent. So, you know, one thing that I, I actually call our statistics shameful, because that's really how we should be thinking about them. They are shameful. 
people. And I'm not a person that subscribes to stigma, blame, judgment, or shame. But this is, this is shameful, and we can do something about it. So for me, you know, it is, it is super, super important that we think through some of the things, some of the decisions we've made in a pandemic that should stay permanent. Let me give a perfect example. Um, even though we have national licensure for nurses and physicians, uh, prior to COVID, we were not allowed to work across state lines. Somehow, <laughs> that got lifted during pandemic. And, and people can go to New York, you can go to California, you can get deployed to go where the resources are needed, even though we've always had national licensure, right? How about we make that permanent? Because that's permanent in the military, like healthcare system. So th- number one. Number two, historically, centers for Medicare and Medicaid, and I like to remind listeners, half the births in the United States of those 4 million are covered by public insurance or Medicaid. We call that Medi-Cal in California. Um, so if we have half the births in the United States are covered by public insurance, right? The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid prior to COVID did not reimburse for telehealth visits. Mm. And somehow COVID hit and everybody got to be online. And, and now we're getting reassurances for enhanced prenatal care billing through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. That we, we've been fighting to make that happen for a long time for our rural folks and our folks that don't have a lot of healthcare providers in their communities, but let a pandemic hit and somehow that that's happened. Let's make that permanent tip. Right. I mean, we, this is why as we think through like so many things that we never thought would be possible, at least in the maternal child health space, like literally happened because of a pandemic. So why not take advantage of that and ask that, that some of those things be made permanent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think some of those lessons extend beyond the maternal health area where we're seeing mm-hmm. mutual aid groups pop up. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah, social programming that makes sense <laughs> and it impacts people in positive ways. And we're seeing that. And for us to have such um, shameful racial disparities in COVID-19 um, mortality it, it, it takes something that shameful to sort of make us check ourselves as a society. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, yeah. I think shameful is such a great word. Um, yeah. And I hope, I hope that people are listening and I hope that we're seeing how we might do things differently. Um, it I hope is so. a hard time, but yeah, it's, it's an opportunity to, to pause, reflect, regroup and redistribute and figure out how to, how to make, you know, make the U.S. more healthy because we know the U.S. isn't, it isn't that healthy, especially for people of color, women of color, and Black women in, um, in particular. No, and, and, and the thing that, that drives me most crazy, and a lot of us in public health tried to explain this to people, but no, again, I hope people are listening now. It, like insurance in and of itself is an intervention. Right. So we need to call out the states that did not expand Medicaid, you know, under the Affordable Care Act as unethical, because we already know that people who have health insurance coverage have better health outcomes. We already knew that. So to somehow say that we're not going to expand Medicaid to give more people coverage options is basically saying that that the intervention in and of itself that we know, you know, in public health research has shown 
to really impact health outcomes, we're just, we're just not going to pay attention to that. So I, I hope we have an emboldened public and an emboldened group of citizens who are seeing rapid changes now that we never thought were possible. Like really, I hope this opens up a lot of people's eyes to what's actually really possible. So that when we talk about things like, you know, canceling student debt, that shouldn't be like, like radical. Or when we start talking about things like basic minimum income, you know, for, you know, citizens, right? We, we, I think we can have some of those discussions now. I, you know, I really appreciate the segue we made into talking about the current pandemic um, with the mm -hmm. virus or COVID-19. And you used maternal health and Black maternal health to, to talk about racial disparities in health. Um, and we are seeing that across the board with who is um, entering more critical conditions and especially who is dying from COVID-19 at much younger age than was expected or hypothesized outside of the United States. Um, mm -hmm. what, what do you have to say about the pandemic more broadly in terms of this as a public health equity crisis? Mm, I could do a whole podcast <laughs> on that. <laughs> um, because to me, this is a perfect case study of what happens when you defund a social safety net. You have a fragile healthcare system. You have a clinical health services provision that has barely been hanging on by a thread. And you do all of this in the context when we're looking at our third corporate bailout in my lifetime. So to me, you know, I think the broader issues, what COVID-19 has done, as has, in my opinion, has laid bare for some people who this is news for, because I would argue that this is not news in Black communities and other communities where, the, where we've reaped the, the you know, sad uh, side effects of divestment. But this is what happens when, when a federal um, government cannot meet the basic needs of its citizens or the purpose that it exists. And so for me, what, what's been really hard, and this is, again, is why as a public health person, it has been so frustrating for me is, you know, perhaps maybe the resolution of social and structural determinants of health is not everybody's goal. Maybe that's actually really not what everybody wants. And maybe it's time to have a conversation about that because, you know, I worry that, you know, in some of the discussions around reopening the economy, that people are expendable. And not only are they expendable, but in black and brown communities that are expendable, I've been very frustrated to see the response around, you know, people who are experiencing homelessness as well as incarcerated persons. I've been really frustrated around the fact that, that there has been so much focus on, you know, reopening the economy, but not saving as many people as possible. And so that for me has been, you know, I, I fundamentally and theoretically, you know, sort of know that that's, you know, how some people think, but it's been very interesting to, to watch it in a very public way. Yeah. So for me, I, 
you know, I hope that we reevaluate how we fund public health. And I hope we reevaluate how we think about healthcare in the United States. Um, because, you know, as a nurse, I feel very angry and I feel very disrespected by the fact that people will let us go to work without appropriate protective equipment. But I feel that way about, you know, the, the janitors and the bus drivers. I usually walk to work, but sometimes I take the bus. I feel that way about the incredible people who are going to purchase groceries and drop them off for folks. I feel that way about the meals for wheels workers. I mean, it's just, and you know, mutual aid has been great, but there also is a role for the federal government. And we need to stop like not saying that because any discussion of what the federal government should or should not do is somehow taboo because, you know, they're a bad thing. No, this was a failed response. Failed across the board. And 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 how are we going to do this differently? That that to me, like we need some truth and reconciliation around that. Because I'm looking for an apology, mm-hmm. you know, from the Joint Commission and other people who've relaxed rules around personal protective equipment. I'm looking for, you know, like a real apology around this whole rationing of different healthcare resources, you know, that are, that do nothing but reinforce, you know, existing inequalities. You know, if we continue to have ethics programs that optimize people most likely to survive, that's grounded in the fact that the reason that black people are not more likely to survive is because our communities have been divested from and, you know, we have all these sort of social determinants of health that really contribute to our poor health, like food deserts or like polluted water and polluted air, right? Like poverty. So to me, this whole, the whole pandemic has done nothing but lay bare. Um, and, and we have a decision, right? In my opinion, we have a decision and we have a choice. As we think about how we want to rebuild our country and rebuild our economy post-COVID, we have an opportunity to center the people who are most vulnerable and who bear the greatest burden. Again, going back to my research approach, right? The people who experience the greatest burden are the people who are most expert that we should be listening to in terms of how we think about rebuilding all of this. I... I want to, I thank you for that, for, I feel like you did a great job just capturing some of those inequities um, that cross multiple levels of the social government and um, mm-hmm. our communities and even the workplace. And I wanted mm-hmm. to ask a little bit more about your, um, I guess, first ca- phase of career that you're about to have an encore in. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, we know that nursing has been a gendered profession and it's mm-hmm. racialized. So could you talk about, you know, could you give us any insight about what it might mean to be a black woman healthcare worker or a nurse right now on those front lines? Um, yes and no, right? So on the one hand, you know, I, I, my clinical work has been, you know, non-existent since October of last year. And I think hearing from nurses and other healthcare professionals 
who are currently on those front lines is super important. So I don't want to misrepresent them. Mm-hmm. That said, you know, I always like to remind people that, that nursing has a strong uh, foundation uh, in the black community in the same way teaching does. Right. So I, I, you know, when, when I always say to people that, you know, Marion Seacole and Harriet Tubman, like we have a lot of nurses um, who have really, really been instrumental in the United States and have really, really done some amazing work. It's always fascinating to me that people know who Florence Nightingale is, but they don't know who Mary Seacole is, or they don't know who Harriet Tubman was, but they were contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Right. So to me, you know, I, I think that caregiving professions, period, have always had some gendered component to it. Um, and that, that the way that we disproportionately value or don't value caregiving professions is a thing. In the context of a pandemic, though, it, it almost becomes a tragedy because we've seen laid to bear that employees are, are pretty um, beholden to their employers in terms of what they can and can't say around the conditions under which that they are working. And that needs to change, right? We need more public accountability for what our public institutions are doing with, for, and by citizens in this time of need. So for me, it's more about, and, you know, I have been very vocal about this both in my Scientific American piece and on social media. I have another piece that's coming out about this, but I reject the uh, pitting of healthcare workers against patients, families, and their visitors, because to me, that's a very binary way of thinking about how to survive a pandemic, right? In my mind, we should be having discussions where how can we all safely get out of this, right? Are there things around pregnancy-related care that don't have to happen in hospitals? And if so, what are those things, and can we move them somewhere? Like ultrasound, non-stress testing. There's all sorts of pregnancy-related care that happens in hospitals that doesn't have to. I would also even argue birth, because we have home birth midwives and birth center, you know, people who are in the Black community that have been doing that work um, safely and well. So why can't we shift our discussion and our conversation more to this whole idea of it shouldn't just be, well, healthcare workers need PPE, and therefore we have to restrict people who can come into the hospital. Well, the question really should be, well, so what are, what are all the other alternatives do we have in order to be able to minimize everybody's risk? And yet some people very rapidly accepted that new citizens should be birthed into the world and folks should exit the world alone. Some people very quickly were okay with that. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. And it's not right. And, and it killed the creativity of our capacity to think when, when people thought that we should take sides. And so for me, you know, I actually think, you know, what I want to say is thank you to all the healthcare providers who are thinking, who are home, taking care of kids, because now they're also teachers and parents, for the people who are taking shifts, for the folks who are, you know, cleaning hospital rooms and hospital beds. I'm not sure if the cafeterias are still functioning in hospitals, but whoever's delivering food to the healthcare providers, like all of that, thank you. But that again comes from a place of how, how can we optimize as many of us getting out of this as possible? And 
being able to, to use the lessons that we've learned during the pandemic to help change how we set up our workplaces in the future. Mm-hmm. So that's how I think about it. Um, you know, in terms of redeploying and rejoining the workforce, you know, I am more about the fact that I am a, I'm an old nurse. I got good skills. Um, and if I can be helpful, then I'm happy to be deployed to, to be helpful and to help out. Um, and to give our colleagues a break, give them a rest. Right. So that's, that's how I'm approaching it. And that's how I think about it, but I wouldn't even opine you know, around what it must be like to, you know, be going to clinic every day or to be going, trying to serve people via telemedicine or doing other pieces. Because right now, as a faculty member, I'm trying to figure out how to help the future workforce be, you know, obtain the skills that they need in order to graduate. (laughs) Right? Because that's the other thing. Somebody always has to have their eye on the future. And, and for me, that's about supporting the poor students who have no idea if they're even going to be able to graduate, who want to help. So I've been working with my advisees and other mentees to really help them get the kind of experiences that they need to be eligible to, to join the healthcare workforce and to pitch in in the future if we have the next wave of this or to give people respite that need rest. That's how I think about it. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. <laughs> I join you in thanking all of the other healthcare workers right now um, who are, you know, working tirelessly because of the conditions that they're in. You know, it's it's sort of like mm-hmm. a forced hero and shiro ship that is maddening. <laughs> um, that yeah. Has set them up. But yeah, on an individual level, I think each and every one. Um, and you for your deciding to go back through that and putting yourself out there. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's the least I can do. Again, like when you're built, you have a different allegiance to your colleagues and your collaborators and the people we serve, right? I was built. People like took a gamble on the future to say we need really great nurses and really great thinkers and really great people. You know, I, I believe that. And so as long as that's true, then that means, you know, for me, I have to think about what I can do to ensure that exact same opportunity for people in the future. Yeah. Because folks believe that about me, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it would seem weird not to sort of want to pay that forward, right? Right. So, yeah. My last question so is... Is about that a bit, um, just thinking about the work that you do and the field that you are in and mm-hmm. how you have, you know, unapologetically discussed fighting Black women and um, mm-hmm. wearing shirts like Black women to, you know, congressional hearings and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> How you track against being the only one or one of onlys and and to cite black women, how has that been for you in your field and what advice do you have for others um, in the similar fields, whether it be medicine, public health, or STEM related fields yeah. where they feel like they're often the only one? Yeah. Well, first of all, 
I got to give a shout out to my good friend, colleague, Joy Career Perry. Dr. Career Perry runs the National Birth Equity Collaborative. And the first time I ever saw her get up in front of the, I think it was the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, she got up and had on a uh, free black woman shirt, t-shirt. I was like, oh my God, who is that? Uh, it was funny. Actually, no, I was at Melissa Harris Perry's uh, Knowing Her Truths conference, because that's where I first met Joya in person. And I remember thinking to myself, God, this is a live stream. This is telecast 2017. Uh, uh, no, it was 2016. It was right after the election. It was before the inauguration. I was like, wow, who is this physician person? Anyway, um, one thing I always say in my work that I do around abortion. So that's the other thing, right? When you work in highly stigmatized areas and you work with community members, you, you really develop this sort of interesting perspective around what's possible. And one of the things that happened to me was I, I got funded to do abortion-related work in the in the Bush administration, like the W administration. <laughs> so to me, that's why when people tell me what's possible and what's not possible, I always side-eye them because I'm always like, um, excuse me now, right? Um, I purposely wore my sight black woman t-shirt when I was doing a congressional briefing uh, that was coordinated by uh, March for Mothers and uh, Rep. Robin Kelly, uh, who's the other representative uh, from uh, Illinois, um, because I had good mentors, right? So if the, the listeners take nothing away from me, have, you got to find good mentors, right? Robin Kelly is an amazing mentor. Michelle Goodwin is an amazing mentor. I have so many incredible Black women who, who do things with me and for me and who even correct me. Like I have people who will pull me aside the way my grandmother used to do and be like, you know, baby, your slip is hanging. Right. And, and, and to say, Hey, you really need to think about, you know, what you just said or what you just wrote or consider this, right. I have an accountability circle of folk. And some of those are in academia. Many of them are not. I, I really, my first funded project after I finished the whole genome work was, was really to evaluate whether or not we could develop a, a cadre of birth doulas uh, from formerly incarcerated women. And when I got that grant, doulas then became my, my number one teachers. They still are to this day. As a nurse, I have no arrogance and no uh, pretense around the fact that, that doulas are essential members of birthing teams and they teach me. Um, in incredible ways. So I, you know, it, another phrase my grandmother would say, you know, you can't get too big for your britches, baby. Well, I'm I'm not too big to acknowledge the fact that the doulas that I work with probably have more skill than I do um, and really, really spend so much time um, working with birthing people, working with people who have abortions, working with folks, you know, through so many things that I, I've learned a lot from them. So for me, mentorship uh, has been the way that I've been able to really, really um, hone and, and really uh, support a lot of the work that I want to do. Um, the second thing that, that I've actually had opportunity to do, and again, this comes from like, like coming up through abortion space, highly stigmatized, you know, highly volatile and polarized work. But like, if you look extreme, then everybody else looks normal. And I've said this for years, right? If, if California looks so extreme in the things that we propose, whether it's the first state, you know, for gay marriage to legalization of marijuana, if we look extreme, then everybody else looks normal. 
So I've always like, like taken that to heart. I never thought I was going to be on some billboards as a faculty member, but you know, here we are. And so, you know, when schools of nursing are looking at faculty, you know, folks can go back and say, you know, at least our faculty members wasn't on the billboard. <laughs> so for me, it's also this idea of know your surroundings and, and, and make sure that you know that your mentors have your back. Um, because I let my dean know, I let everybody know, like, like when I, like I wasn't seeking permission, but I gave them a heads up to be like, Hey, I'm doing the show. And folks were like, Oh, okay. And mentors I know have had both, uh, protected me as well as supported me in very public and in very private ways. Um, but I, I recently said this to my good collaborator, uh, uh, Dr. Esther Chu, who's an emergency room physician at OSHU, and she started the uh, Get Me P PPE uh, hashtag on Twitter. You know, if you always are on the side of the people that we serve, then you're never wrong. And so for me, it, it's always about, I am a black woman, right? So for me, centering black women and fighting black women, you know, I'm only helping myself. Right. But not to the exclusion of anybody else. So for me, it, it's always this whole idea of if we center the people that we serve, then everything else becomes pretty easy in terms of how you map decisions around who you want to be in your career, whether it's public health or healthcare or anthropology or sociology or medicine or, you know, whatever it is. If service is your goal, um, I don't, I don't think you can ever be wrong, um, especially if that service is geared towards, you know, having great ideas about how to make things different and how to make things better. So that, that's kind of how I navigate, how I decide what to do and not do and, and, and how I think about who I collaborate with and who I partner with. Um, I try to make sure I never have to do that by myself. Um, because again, accountability is, is, it's a joint effort. Um, and, and within the health professions, I think we need to have a real reckoning around that, that for too long, we've allowed either certain professions or certain individuals to, to make decisions for everybody else. And that's not working. And so we need to try something else because that's, that's really not working. So that's how I think about it. Is that helpful? Extremely helpful. <laughs> I've been taking notes this whole conversation. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your expertise, sharing your whole self, um, sharing your wisdoms and wisdoms that have been passed down to you. Um, I have learned a ton and I know that the listeners well, as well. Well, I'm grateful. I mean, I am trying to pay it forward and because at some point I'm going to be old girl and I want people, people in the future to take good care of me. <laughs> I, I, I mean, there is a selfish no, component to this, right? <laughs> All right. Well, but I do. I want us to, to be better in the future. Yeah. I mean, if you want to end with some, that was my last question, actually. But, you know, you've, you've just taken us on a journey in this conversation. But if you wanted to give any concluding thoughts about the future or ideas for the futures or a call to action or any, any um, last podcast words, we would love to hear. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the way that I think about things is like this, right? I mean, 
every idea sounds crazy until you actually do it. I think I actually saw that on a Nike ad that has Serena Williams on it. But I actually really believe that, right? In retrospect, it actually doesn't feel so strange for me to, like, acknowledge that I was on a billboard. But at the time, people thought that was crazy, right? I mean, in the same way that when people look back on 2020 and and they're like, y'all really, like, only allow people to work across state lines because of the pandemic in 2020? Like, that's going to look really foolish in hindsight, right? So my, my closing thought always is, Things only look, you know, impossible or things only look, you know, insurmountable or things only look really radical in real time. But in retrospect, you know, sometimes it's a really good, really, really good idea. Like one of the, you know, I I was talking about Hurricane Katrina earlier. You know, it looks crazy that they were able to go into art stores and a whole lot of other places to be able to get personal protective equipment. But it makes sense because they had lived through a hurricane. Right. What lessons are we going to learn living through a pandemic? And how can we help shape a future that that really shows that we actually learned some important lessons? That's what I would say. Well, thank you, Dr. McLemore, for spending your time, your afternoon with us on the Say Black Woman podcast. Um, we are so thankful for the work that you do and for the people that you serve and for your encouragement of us to join in and centering those and, and um, building health equity, especially for regarding maternal health. Well, I'm grateful for you all and, and thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.siteblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world.